Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do everything. Absolutely everything my Bible says I can do. By His Spirit, this is God speaking to me. Amen. All right, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1, if you would. Nehemiah chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue on in our series on the book of Nehemiah. I um, have, I feel, and uh, I believe this is being confirmed. Of course, my pastor, prophet, uh, Dr. Barkley, confirmed this earlier uh, this year, and I've heard it from other prophets as well, that we are entering into a great move of the Holy Spirit, a great revival. And there is a release that God is going to do this year uh, that is going to totally transform and change the church. And we have to uh, open ourselves up to that. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in us and through us in the church. Nehemiah's book is going to be vitally important, I believe, for our understanding. And so he's kind of, God released this uh, to me earlier and says, I want you to preach in Nehemiah because Nehemiah experienced a great revival, and uh, that revival had such an incredible impact on Israel. You know, it was amazing with what Nehemiah did, because years earlier, Israel's been decimated for about 140 years, and so the walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, all the temple artifacts were all taken off into captivity. Um, About uh, a few years before Nehemiah ever goes back, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel feels the the impression of the Lord to go back to and ask for permission to go back and to rebuild uh, the temple, to to restructure it. And so he does. They lay the foundation. They start to rebuild the temple. Um, He, uh, I believe, actually, that all of that happened because of Esther, of course, by God, but because of Esther's influence over the king at the time at Xerxes, which would have been her son. So... The, the Israelites, Zerubbabel goes in, he rebuilds the temple. Um, then a guy by the name of Ezra, who we're familiar with from scripture, he comes in and he has this burden to take all of the artifacts back. So he gets the, the different things, the gold or bronze that's left that was part of the temple worship, and he's going to transport it all back. With about, I think it was about 400 people went with him, and they're going to transport it back. Now remember, this is no short distance, okay? This is about a 500-mile journey if they go through the desert from where they're in captivity. It's about an 800-mile journey if they go through the Fertile Crescent, which they probably did so they would have enough supplies. Now, the average man can walk about 20 miles a day, right? A horse can do about 5 to 10 miles better. So if you, and that's a, if a horse is doing 30 miles a day, it's booking it. So um, you can imagine, you know, they have a, multiple, I don't know what, what's 20 into 800? Uh, how many days is that? 20 in, huh? Is, is it 40 days? Okay, so 40 days they traveled to get to where they're, and that's every day traveling 20 miles. That, that'd be a lot. You think about, you know, how many of you try to track your steps during the day? You do a step, you know, like what I do with, you know, you get your little deal there and you try to track your steps. It takes a lot to get 5,000 steps a day, right? I mean, that's a lot of mileage. you got to move. I mean, you can't just stand around. So I want you to think about that. What does that average out? That ends up to be um, 
I think uh, if you do 5,000 steps a day, that averages out to about two and a half miles or something like that. So here's the deal. You got to think with these guys, they're, they're not just doing 5,000 steps a day. They're doing Huh? At least 50,000? Is that, huh? Almost 50,000 steps a day. Uh, I don't think weight loss was a problem. Right? 50,000, could you imagine doing that every single day? I, I don't know what the distances are here, but it would be pretty close to walking from here to Saginaw. Pretty close. At least to Shields. So, you know, you're talking, these guys do this every, pack up camp, move down the road, you know, we've got to cook dinner, do all the stuff, can't travel at night, move down the road. So they're doing this. So Ezra takes all these artifacts and about 400 people with him, and they travel all this distance. Then some guys come back from there, as we talked about in the book of Nehemiah, and they bring a report of the walls being down. You know, even though the temple had been rebuilt, and everything, the artifacts were in it, revival had not yet broke out among the people. And, uh, that, and, and, and part of that, I think, is, I, at least from my understanding in, in history, part of that was because it had become acceptable to live in ruin. You know, when you've lived in ruin for 140 years, you get used to living in ruin. And when I was a kid, we used to live in the projects called Hillwood Homes in Akron, Ohio. It was nasty. I mean, the, the walls were the thinnest uh, drywall that you could get. I mean, it, they didn't put, it was government housing. And so, you know, they didn't put a lot of money into the government housing back then. And so we had one stove in the living room and that heated a three bedroom apartment or whatever, three, whatever you would call it, what we lived in. A little tiny kitchen, the living room and three bedrooms and one bathroom. And so that, that space, I don't know what they called them, space heaters, I'm assuming, but, but, the, but it heated the whole house. Now, before that, it was all coal. That was just one furnace there in the room, and it heated everything. And I remember my dad going down and buying buckets of coal for so much money and bringing them back, and that's how we heated the house, the, the apartment. But you know what? Even though I lived in poverty, I didn't know I lived in poverty. When you live in poverty all your life, you don't know that you live in poverty. I mean, you know there's people that have better stuff than you are, but this is what you're used to, right? That's what you get used to. You know, if you live on macaroni and cheese, and you know, you get used to living on macaroni and cheese. If you, I mean, if that's, you know, that's what you've had, that's what you learn to live on. I mean, it's not, the, it's not good for you it's at, in any way, but if that's what you have, you live on ramen noodles, right? You know, Sharon and I lived on white bread and um, deviled ham, you know, the little, with the little demon on it, huh? Potted meat, you know, with the, you know, the, 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 I should tell you something, there was a devil on it, all right? And it said deviled ham, what does that mean? I mean, you talk about putrefying your system, white bread and, huh. You know, but we didn't have money to buy wheat bread. We only had enough money to buy a 33 cent loaf of white bread and a dollar can or 75 cent can of potted meat. And that's what we, which was basically not very much meat and a lot of fat, right? I think it's all the stuff that fell on the floor and they go, well, we got to, we got to sell that. So let's turn it into something. (laughs) 
So they ground it up real good and melted it down and put it in cans and sold it to poor people like us. Well, when you live in that, you're not like sitting around going, oh, you know, we're just so poor and poor me. And you just learn to live that way. Well, think about that. The Israelites for 140 years had lived with everything that they believed in in ruin. You get used to that after a while. And when you get used to that, you begin to identify with that. You know, when I, when I was poor, if somebody said, well, you're poor, I didn't say, no, I'm rich. I said, you're right, we are poor. Because I identified with being poor because that's all I understood was being poor. Does that make sense to you this morning? The Israelites can't experience revival, the true revival that God wanted to do in Israel until they once had rebuilt everything that had been stolen from them. It changed them when the wall was put up. It really did. I mean, incredible reformation happens. You'd have thought it was the temple, you know, the church. You'd have thought it was the church. Well, we get the church done. Who cares about the wall, right? That'd be like you and I, you know, we're saying, well, look, man, we got our building ready, but our parking lot sucks. But that's all right because we don't care about the parking lot because when we're in here, this is awesome, man. This is great in here, right? We got air conditioning. We got all the chairs. We got the nice lights. We got heat. We've got you know, all of the comforts, who cares that it's a muddy parking lot? You don't care about that till you go out in a muddy parking lot, right? So you'd have thought this would have been enough, but it's not enough for the Israelites because they're identifying with past destruction in their life. Now listen to me. They're identifying with past destruction in their life. That's what they have become used to, and nothing, really no one, they tried a few times to change this, but they couldn't rebuild the wall. Everybody failed for 70 years. They kept trying to rebuild this wall around Israel, it could not, around Jerusalem, and it could not get done. Because when you, when you step, and I'll, we'll get into this a little later into the, the, the series here, whatever you strive to do with God and for God, you will always meet resistance. Always. Everybody say always. Look, I... I know that we think that it should be easy, but it is not easy to follow the path of the Lord. It's easy to come to the Lord, but to walk in his ways, there is resistance. And if you're not familiar with the resistance the enemy offers or the things that he tries to do to try to sway you off, you'll never fulfill the plan. You know, Israelite, they, they did all this. They had a great move of the Holy Spirit. Now, just like I believe we're going to have a great move of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but here's the thing, that when that great move of the Holy Spirit happened, it lasted nine years, nine years, and it was over with. By then, the Israelites began to settle back into their old identity of just giving to God whatever they could, you know, afford to give or didn't want, throwing. They, they, in fact, at one place, God says, you just sneer at, you, you blow snot at my, my, my temple. You don't care about it at all. You don't care about my stuff. You don't care about my plan. You don't care about my will. That's only nine years later, and then the book of Malachi comes out, which I encourage you to read and just look through that, how that people were robbing God. They were, they were, they were defiling the temple. The priests were just as bad as the people. They were just as bad as the people. So in Nehemiah, we have this guy who has never been to Jerusalem. He's the king's cupbearer. Now, let me explain what a king's cupbearer is. It's the king's cupbearer. It's that simple. He is the food taster, the wine taster. He is the one that he gets to try everything to make sure that they're not poisoning the king, okay? 
And so that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah happens to run into his brother and some other guys that have been to Jerusalem. Now remember, he's never been there. And when he's talking to them, they tell him about how that the walls are in ruin and the people are coming under attack because of it. And all of a sudden, something Nehemiah already knew about, now get this, something he already knew about because he already knew the walls were in destruction. Every Israelite would have. Something he already knew about hit him. It hit him hard too. It hit him in his heart. It hit him so much so that he got a burden in his life. And that burden hit him so strong that he knew this was more than just hearing about the wall. Something's going on here. And so he didn't know what to do. So he did what every believer should do when they don't know what to do. He prayed. And he began to talk to the Lord. And he said, God, I don't know what to do. He said, this is your people. This is your hand. You're putting this burden on me. I don't know how to even make this happen. But God, I'm asking you for direction and for clarity. Now, all of chapter 1 is, and I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, but this is a refresher, that what God is doing is he's moving He's moving Nehemiah into what's called liminal space. Liminal space is a theological, psychological term when you are placed in a position of threshold. In business, they call it a tipping point. You know, in tip, if you ever, there's a great book out if you're, a business, if you're into business called Tipping Point. And it just talks about how an industry, how that one thing can happen and it causes all kinds of things to take off. I mean, incredibly. Incredibly. Um, you know, uh, tipping points are, are liminal space. They're a point when a company or a church or an individual, they're facing a threshold. They can go back to something they're familiar with or they can go forward into territory unknown. You never succeed going backwards. You only succeed going forward. You say, well, where's that at? Jesus said that any man who puts his hand to the plow is not fit for the kingdom of God if he keeps looking back. Why? Because the kingdom of God is in front of you, not in your past. The kingdom is in front of you. It's not where, you, it's not where you've been. It's where you're going. At least it should be. So liminal space is when we get to this point and it's a total faith point because you don't know what lies ahead. You have to totally trust. And, you know, the really, uh, probably the greatest liminal space that we'll all face in our lives, truthfully, is, is that when we come to the point of death. Because, you know, even though we're believers, we're Christians, we believe that we're going to go to heaven, when we come to that final liminal space point in our life, that's where the, 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 that we know that our bodies can't bear this life anymore, but we're not seeing God, we're not, you know, we're not, we're, I mean, we believe, but we're still trusting that all of this is true, that the word is true, that our relationship with Christ is true. Now, I think one of the really cool things that happens for Christian believers, I, I really do think this is cool, is when God, when your life comes to that point of liminal space, God begins to let you see through that veil uh, uh, to heaven. Now, you know, Stephen, uh, and just to give you a reference point for this biblically so you don't think I'm making this stuff up, uh, Stephen, when he was being stoned by the Israelites, by the Pharisees, as he stood there and they began to throw the rocks at him, what happened to him? Where he was standing, all of a sudden, he could see into heaven. And it wasn't like, you know, you see paintings and all of a sudden, you know, it's like the sky opened up and, okay. He began to see into the realm of glory. And when he did, he saw Jesus standing 
Jesus wasn't on earth. Jesus isn't on earth right now except through his church. Jesus wasn't on earth, but Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father while Stephen was being, uh, was being stoned. We, um, you know, I, many of you know that my aunt uh, here just recently passed away, and thank you all for that prayed and for us through that. And um, my aunt, we didn't, you know, you, you sometimes don't get all the stories about what's happening in their last moments. You know, I was at, with her in hospice up to the end, but, but uh, there were some things that happened before that. Um, and my brother and sister were cleaning, my brother and sister-in-law were cleaning out her room and, uh, um, yesterday, and the nurse that was with my aunt when she fell uh, came into the room and said, you know, said, you know, I'm so sorry for all your loss. And, and she says, do you know what happened in her, last, in her last moments before she lost, before she went out in consciousness? And uh, my sister-in-law said, no. She says, well, she had fallen in the bathroom and broken her leg. And when she fell, I saw her laying there on the floor. And I came in the room and says, I'm here to help you. I'll help you. Uh, back to your chair, and she said, no, she said, don't bother, she says, because she's helping me. She says, who's helping you? She said, mom is helping me, which is my grandmother who's already in heaven. She's helping me. She says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. It's time to let me go. Let me go. I'm ready to go. And then, of course, that evening, you know, people sometimes leave their bodies and their bodies still keep you know how that is. You know, the body will still, just like a chicken, you cut its head off, it's still running around, all right? So sometimes people are long gone, but their bodies are still trying to breathe and trying to function. And uh, so anyways, she says, I'm ready to go. Now, I could tell you story after story after story after story after story that people reach that liminal space in their life at death, and they begin to see. And I think God does it intentionally as an encouragement to, to believers to say to them, look, this is people that are dear to you, they're waiting for you, and they're, you're going to them. You're going to them. It's awesome. But you know, death is a great step of faith, isn't it? It's a great step of faith for all of us. You know, we don't like to think about that. I mean, we're thinking about living, not dying, but, you know, we all realize that someday, if life, if Jesus tarries, we're, that's going to all end here for us. When it does, how are we reflecting on that? How are we developing our faith towards that, that final what then in our lives? God brought Nehemiah to a place of liminal space. It was almost like God was like, I'm going to come on you so strong about this that I'm, I'm going to make it hard for you to go back. I'm going to make it really hard for you to go back, okay? So I'm going to make it that you almost, I'm going to box you in here in this threshold, and I'm going to make it that you're going to be only thinking about going forward and you're not thinking about going back. You know, God will do that to your life. He'll absolutely do that to you. He'll push you in. He'll just, you know, he'll let you make all the bad decisions. He'll let you make all the bad, screw yourself up. You know, the prodigal son hit a place of liminal space. I mean, you know, we talk about that here this morning. I mean, he kept doing it. I can make it work. I can fix it. I can deal with it. I got this under control. And then what happens? One day, he hits a point of threshold in his life, and he looks at his life, and he goes, this is horrible. There, this is not good. 
I'm not going to get my life to change heading the direction. You know, I don't know. You know how it is, how we tell ourselves that, well, it'll get better. Look, if, if you're in control, it's not going to get better. Uh, let me say it again. If you are in control, it is not going to get better. It's spiraling out of control. And God will stand back and go, have at it. Go. Do it. Because here's what I'm going to do. I make all things work together for good for those who called according to my purpose. You're called according to my purpose. At some point here, you're going squ- to quit screwing your life up. And you're going to turn to me. And when you do, now I'm going to move you into my divine purpose for your life. Woo! Oh, I hit that point a bunch of times in my Christian walk. I hit it as a sinner. I hit it as a Christian, man. You just get to that place. You feel the pressure behind you. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore. And at that point, you're at a threshold. Thresholds are points of surrender. Surrendering your faith. It's the lifting of the hands we talked about earlier. It's saying, God, you're, Lord, take control. Take control. God, take control. Please, God. Man, how many times I've prayed that prayer through the, through the years of my Christian walk. God, take control, Lord, please. I've screwed up again. I've messed my life up. I've helped me, Jesus. I need help. God moved Nehemiah into that point. So as Nehemiah gets moved into that place of liminal space, this, this moment of threshold, oh, man, this is so cool. You're going to be blessed by this. I want you to see chapter 2. So it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now, this is about four months later. You know, when it starts telling us dates, we really should know what those dates refer to. Nehemiah didn't just like run in. You know, this is a very, very, uh, he has to be very careful here because if you mess up, you die. So he isn't going to just run in and say, hey, king, I need to tell you something. Or I got a word from the Lord or whatever. He, he's, he's like, he just is trying to sort out, God, you're going to have to open the doors. You're going to have to help this make, you're going to have to make this happen. So the month of Nisan is about four months later from when all of this happened in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. And now I had not been before time sad in his presence. You were not permitted as a servant or a slave to be unhappy. So you, you do your job and you're happy about it. And even if you have personal problems, you put a smile on your face and be joyful. So the standard rule was if Nehemiah is there, Nehemiah's got a smile on his face and he's serving the cup to the king. Now look what happens. And wherefore the king said unto me, why is your countenance sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And I was very afraid. Now, if you're the king's, if you're the king, stay with me now. If you're the king and your cupbearer who is supposed to be happy and he's tasting the wine and he's not happy, what do you think's going on? Something's, something's fishy with the wine, right? Something's bad in the food. So he says, look, this is, this is, what's, what's the deal, man? What's going on with you? And he says, I was never like, I mean, it says, right, I was never like this in front of the king, ever. And then he says, I was very sore afraid because he knows now, guess what? He's about to cross the threshold. Now look, it's one thing to be interested, it's another to be committed, right? 
Remember as kids, you, you probably did this like I did it. You climb up this ladder, you're at the, the swimming pool, you know, the swimming hole or wherever. You climb up on the tree and you get to the high limb where everybody's jumping in. And when you get up there to the high limb or you get up to the high dive and you get out there, you're very interested in jumping off of the high dive. But you know, 15 feet can look a long way down when you're standing 15 feet up. And you look down, and your interest now has to become commitment. And, you know, sometimes, you know, some of us, like me as a kid, we, we got our toes out over the edge of the board, right? And we kept looking down, and then we're still thinking, do I want to do this? Do I want to do it? And I'm going to tell you, there were several times I went back down. You know, I had to push girls out of the way and get back down the, the ladder. <laughs> Because I hit my place of liminal space, my threshold, and I wasn't ready to commit. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes you're in a place in your life that you can't go back. Nehemiah's there. See, if you didn't, look, if you didn't, didn't want to do this, then, then don't pray about it. If you don't want to do this, then don't tell the king why you look sad today. Just tell him you got diarrhea or something. Don't tell him. Are you with me? Don't tell him, oh, well, okay. Because he says, man, I was afraid. What's he afraid of? Well, he's, of course, afraid of the kid. But he he knows this is is it, man. This is is the time. Yeah, do or die, man. I'm either going to do this or I'm not going to do it. And so he was so afraid. Now watch what he does. And so I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? And this is bold. When the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. And the king said to me, well, what do you make requests for? Now, he didn't go, well, I want to go back and build the wall. Look what he did the next line. The king said, well, what do you want? He's kind of, you know, whatever you want to do, let's do it. And what does Nehemiah do? He begins to pray. You know, that's the great thing about Nehemiah and his leadership is is that no matter what's going on, he's praying. And, you know, I can't imagine that he, it says, and so I prayed to the Lord that it was like a really long prayer. I can't fathom that, you know, he got down and, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, and, you know, or now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul, you know, or God is great, God is good, and we, I mean, look, I think at this moment in his life, He's saying, dear God, help me. Sharon and I, we were driving one time down, the, down the, uh, the turnpike, going to see Dr. Bob Lemon. We were going to Napoleon, Ohio, and uh, there was an ice snowstorm, and uh, we were running late, and we were trying to get there. I had an Olds 98 front-wheel drive, and so I'm thinking, man, it'll be all right. We'll get there. It's a heavy car, front-wheel drive, and we're flying down the road. And, man, I, all of a sudden, I started to feel that back end lift up off of the, it's a bit bad feeling if you've ever had that. You, you know this thing is starting, and I don't even know what I did next. I do know that I looked over, and Sharon didn't have her seatbelt on. Everybody say, shame on Sharon. Yeah. And that back end started to go, and it, and, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and there's a semi behind us coming down the road, too. Now, I would love to tell you that I prayed 
the most powerful theological prayer that I could pray at that moment. Our Father, you know, your God, you're so... My prayer pretty much sounded like this. Jesus, help me. And I looked, Sharon's right next to me, you know, going... <gasps> and she's screaming, Jesus, help me. And you know what? That vehicle spun around, hit a snowbank. The truck stopped. It never even came close to us. We hit that snowbank, and the vehicle stopped. I don't know how fast we were going, but it just slid out, and we turned and got back on the road, and Sharon finally put her seatbelt on. So, and, yeah, that's the moral of the story is that Sharon said to me, I will never do that again. See, I don't think you got to pray some long prayer when you're faced with a predicament. When you're at that point in liminal space, you're at that threshing point in your life, that threshold where you could move forward. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just saying, Jesus, help me. I don't know what to do. Help, God. I, I, I don't think you got to like, people say, well, I don't know how to pray. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's not that hard. God, help me. In Jesus' name, I'm desperate. It's more about your attitude than it has anything to do with your words. God doesn't say, you're impressing me with your words. God says, look, I hear you because of your heart. Good preaching, Pastor. So I said, look, King, if it please the King and if thy servant has found favor in your sight, that thou would send me unto Judah and unto the city of my father's sepulchers that I may build it. And the King said unto me, and the Queen was sitting by him, well, how long is that journey going to be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given to me, the governors beyond the river. So see, Nehemiah, during this time, this four-month period of prayer, he's thought out. Okay, the, I know this king. He's going to ask these questions. How long is it going to take? That's smart, isn't it? I mean, if he's a good leader, the king's a good leader, he's going to want to, how much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Right? Everybody agree with that? You're going to build a house. What do you want to know? How, long, how much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Right? So here, here he is. The king's like, he knows. So he says, look, here's what I, and then he says, look, I'm going to need materials. Will you give me those materials? Now I want to give you this quote. This is so powerful. This will really help you this morning. Uh, you might want to write this down. Nehemiah, remember this, is just a cupbearer. He's not an architect, nor is he in construction. He's not a bricklayer, right? I mean, he, he is not trained in any of that. He has been raised as a slave in the king's court as a cupbearer. He knows about serving the cup. He knows about protocol. He knows about how to respond to the king. He knows all of that. He is about to step into something that is God's divine purpose for his life that he knows nothing about. Now stay with me now. Now listen to this. Everyone finds their true identity and their self-esteem as they step into their divine purpose. Everyone does. We all find our true identity, who we really are. You know, we, I mean, these guys didn't know I was preaching on this, but that I, on identity, the true identity and you find your self-esteem as you step into your divine purpose. But here's the hard part. Get, now, you'll love this. But what God has called you to do, you probably don't know how to do. 
and you're going to have to trust him to show you how to do it. Ouch. That's hard. See, does Nehemiah know how to build a wall? No, he don't know how to, but he's going to pray. He knows how to pray. Does Nehemiah know how to get people together to work? He's a, Look, he's a one-man job here. He's a cupbearer. He didn't have a team of people that served the cup. He's the cupbearer. And the miracle with Nehemiah is, and it just shows you the power of prayer and asking God for direction in your purpose, is just that the miracle is, is that in what, took, what they could do for 70 years, he does it in 52 days. 52 days. And, you know, truthfully, as you go and you look, I mean, you know, most of Israel's battles all came from the north. So the north is completely destroyed. I mean, it's burned down to nothing. In fact, when he go, tries to go up, he doesn't even bother to go look because he knows it's so destroyed, there's nothing there. He goes to the southern gate, which they would have had some protection down there, and it's all destroyed too, but not as bad as the northern part. So we're talking about, we're talking about that he didn't like, you know, it wasn't like that he had a bunch of rocks sitting around that he could go, well, here, we got these, let's just rebuild what's there. This, we're talking about fresh start here in 52 days, and he's going to do this. It's, 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 I mean, you, you know the end of the story. Revival breaks out. The wall is built. It's absolutely incredible, and God has called him to a purpose that he's not prepared for. He has no idea how to do it, and he's going to absolutely, and that's exactly what God does to you as a believer. See, in this move of the spirit that God is doing and, and what he's doing in the church is he's calling people to things they're not prepared for. Well, why would he do that? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. If you know how to do it, you don't need faith to do it. Right? Right? You don't need faith to do it. I mean, you, you already understand it. You know, you, you already, you've already figured out. You, and, and, if, and if you already know how to do it, you're going to follow a pattern that you used to follow instead of following the pattern that maybe God wants you to follow. So God's going to call you sometimes to do things you have no idea what to do. So that you'll pray and you'll ask God how to do it. Now what you and I want is we want God to fully equip us, fully get us ready. And then when we fully feel like when we've put our stamp of approval. Stay with me now. When we put our stamp of approval, I'm ready. Then we'll say, okay, I'll do it. So we talk in church, we say, okay, look, we need people to serve in children's ministry. Oh, well, you know, I... uh, I don't know how to do that. Well, guess what? While you're doing it, you'll learn how to do it. You'll learn a lot. In fact, day one, I promise you, you'll learn a ton. <laughs> and hopefully it won't be that I'm not called to children's ministry. <laughs> no, you know, see what we do in the church, we just are, we're so awesome. We're so amazing. We got our little excuses that we'll make, you know, to try to get out of stuff. You know, to, because when it comes time to go from interest to commitment, oh, Jesus, I want to serve you. Lord, I want to serve you with my whole life. I give my, Lord, I, whatever you call me to, okay, go be an usher. Well, I don't know how to do that. But if you'll show me how to do it, Lord, then I'll go, then I'll go tell somebody. Because I don't want to look stupid. Who, who wants to look stupid? Nobody. I don't want to look stupid. I'm not going to go tell Chuck Clark I want to be an usher when I don't know how to usher. See, we want God 
to tell us everything. And God says, I'm not telling you nothing except what you need to know at that moment. I'm going to guide you and I'm going to lead you. Chapter 2 is all about God revealing to Nehemiah how to do this. He goes in there. He looks at that wall. He spies out the land. And he doesn't do it when everybody's around because he doesn't want influence. He wants God to tell him what to do. So he doesn't even tell the people that he's there that that's what he's there for. He goes in and he spies out at night. He does it at night while everybody else is asleep. And so by the moonlight, he walks, he takes his horse and goes down and goes around the wall. And he, he looks at, okay, this is down and this is broke down and this is tore up. And this is, okay, God, what are we going to do? God, how are we going to deal with this? God, guide me and lead me. Let me tell you that in the move of what God wants to do by his spirit, the greatest adversary that God is facing is not the, is not the devil. It's you. It's you. Well, I don't know if I much like that, but I don't care. because he's trying to take you into something and you're trying to stay out of something. Even though you might be interested, you're just, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know, Pastor. You know, in, um, in the 90s, there was a church in Toronto, Canada. This is about 94. church in Toronto, Canada, they got about 150 people that come to church there, 150 to 120 people that come to church. The pastor's name is John Arnott. And John Arnott gets to a place in his life where he is frustrated with where they are as a church. They're having services and they'll have people saved once in a while, and you know, and, but he's just, he's frustrated because he knows there's more that God wants to do. There's, it's like the hand of the Lord has been on him and left a burden inside of him that, that he knows there's more, but he doesn't know how to get to that point. And so he finds out about this guy named Randy Clark. Randy Clark was down, had been influenced by a guy named Rodney Howard Brown and this move of the spirit that happened. Randy Clark was a Baptist pastor and uh, he resigned his church and, and he got totally healed from a car wreck that he had been in and it forever changed his life. Arnott hears about Randy Clark. they got about 150 people. He invites Randy Clark to come to his church to preach and uh, to do a series of meetings there. Clark comes in. The church revival breaks out. I mean, and, and it breaks out in an amazing way. We're talking about hundreds of people that come to Christ, okay? Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people that come to Christ. We're talking about incredible moves, moves and demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. And within just a couple of months, the church went from 150 to 1,000 people. Okay, you didn't hear me. Yeah, went from 150 to 1,000 people. All right, a very short period of time. And they had meetings like five nights a week. Okay, now I'm in administrative, you know, administratively thinking, how do you do that? Because that's what everybody says. Well, how do you do that? Well, you can't just do it. You can't just do it. Say, so, well, it was the Holy Spirit that did it. Well, yeah, he did that. He, he started it that way. But here's what had to happen in the church. Absolute 
surrender at a point of threshold that I'm going to do whatever it takes for this move of God to continue on and for powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit to happen. You know, what if everybody that, out of that 150 said, well, look, man, you know, that was so awesome, and I, I don't want to miss out on what God's doing, so don't sign me up for children's ministry. I don't want to be an usher. I want to be involved. I mean, I want to get knocked out in the spirit. I want to, I want to get filled with the whole, I want, I, 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 look, and until you and I get I out of the way and say, it's not what I want, it's what you want, Lord. That's what Nehemiah spent all this time doing. God, I, okay, I want, I want this and I want, I want security. I want my nice cushy job of cup bearing and, and doing what I do. It's so nice here. I got a beautiful room, man. I've got a great life. I get to eat the best food because I'm eating before the king. I got political power because I'm in the presence of the most powerful man in the world at that time. I get to be here every day, three, four times a day. I get to hear the deep, you know how that is. You know, if you're in a room and there's some big shots in the room and how you're trying to listen at their table or you're trying to, you know, what are they talking about? It must be something really, you know, spiritual, really deep, really powerful. You know, oh, there's Brother Hagin. Well, if you're seeing Brother Hagin and Lister Summerall, you're dead. Okay, so I'm sorry. (laughs) Or you're about to be. So, uh you know, but, but, you know, some big, oh, Brother Copeland, Brother Copeland and Jerry Savelle are over there talking at the, you know, and you're sitting at the table next to him. You are no longer paying attention to anybody at your table. You're like trying to listen in. You get your phone recorder, turn it on, point it that direction. Right? Or whoever. I mean, I got all this that's in my life. And you're telling me, God, you put this on me to walk away from my comfort, my comfortable zone. That move of the Holy Spirit, that, look, we all would, wouldn't, I mean, glory to God, man, a thousand people. And we're not, I'm not talking about the numbers. It was just what God was doing, but a thousand. So, okay, so bang, it hits here. And all of a sudden we got a thousand people. Do you know how, what it takes to take care of a thousand people? Right? That's a thousand flushes on the toilet. Huh? That's hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water that people are drinking. That's traffic. That's dirt. Poor Sonia, man. She's going to be cleaning her brains out in here. Her and Jose, God bless them. See that? The ushers are going to have to ush at a whole new level. The worship team is going to be not just playing. You know, do you see what I'm saying? And and look, I'm not saying that's how it's going to happen here. But if that's what happens, who's going to get in the way? Well, you know, Pastor, I just have to believe that God supernaturally empowered them all to do that. I don't think that is what happened at all. I think that they got supernaturally empowered at the moment that they hit the threshold and they said, that's it. I'm tired of just doing church like we always do church. I'm tired of living the life. I'm not going around this mountain anymore. I'm done with this life. I'm done with that. And here's the, there, the I see that it's there. It can happen. People can be saved by the hundreds. Let me tell you what happened out of that. Uh, it was powerful what happened in Toronto. There was a lot of weird stuff. I mean, there was. There was a lot of strange, weird. You know why there was strange, weird stuff? Because people are strange and weird. (laughs) 
So this pastor, he goes there, and he sees what's happening in the church, and he goes down, he lives, has a church in Brownsville, Florida. He has been praying for a move of the Spirit in his church. In fact, it's so heavy on him in the 90s that he's basically at a point that he's ready to quit. He's going to quit pastoring. The, he's done with this church, all right? But he hears about this guy named Steve Hill who is an evangelist, and he says, Steve, would you come in? We're doing, let's do it. Let's start some meetings. Let's do them on Father's Day weekend. And so Steve Hill comes in. He's going to preach. They're, you know, the pastor's pleading, please, folks, please, just let's all pray for revival. Let's pray for the move of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's pray for God to do something supernatural and, and, and beyond what we're already experiencing. And so here he is. Steve Hill comes in, preaches on Father's Day weekend. In the church that morning, the meanest teenager in the church, the meanest, I mean totally away, drugged to church by her parent teenager. The power of God hits her at the altar call. You can go online on YouTube and watch this happen to her. She comes down, the power of God is on her so strong, she cannot stop shaking. She can't even talk. She's so messed up. Now, People that knew her family that knew her told you that she was the most rebellious, obstinate, nasty person, that she fought with her parents nonstop. She was she was a troublemaker in the church, and God hit her on Father's Day weekend. She's standing at the altar shaking. Now, you know, there's a couple of things that happen when that happens to this girl. She's repenting and God's moving on her. All the teenagers that know her and what she's like, they're following her to the altar because they see that this is the real deal, man. This is this really has happened. And a lot of the parents thought, well, we'll see. Because that's how parents a lot of times will think. Well, we'll see if she got it, you know, if it makes any change in her life. This thing that happened with her spurred a move of the Holy Spirit in that church. Those meetings went way beyond Father's Day weekend, and they would meet five, six nights a week, and that meeting continued on, and they have, they have tracked, I think it was almost 200,000 people that gave their life to Jesus Christ in those meetings. Oh, yeah, you know, now look, hey, come on, stay with me just for a minute here, please. Let's just be honest. Oh, man, Pastor, that's totally awesome. Couldn't that happen here? Well, you're the problem. Well, I don't like you saying that. I don't care. Because, because look, most of your problems you have in your life are not other people. They're you. Your health problems are your problem. They're not other people's problems. Your financial woes are not other people's problems. It's you. That you get fired at every job you're at isn't the, that they're all bad employers. It's you, man. You got a potty mouth. You need to knock it off. Man, I'm doing really good preaching for just a few amens. And until you and I, like Nehemiah, we get to that point, we say, Lord, look, um, I'm, I, I'm ready. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Whatever, when we get that, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I, I'll do it. You know, the, the sad thing is with all of the, these moves, even the Toronto is, is that when the leadership, when the people got to the point where they were no, in, no longer interested in what he wanted 
and they were more interested in what they wanted, it was over. Same thing happened with Brownsville. Brownsville blew apart, man. After about five or six years, it was done. It was gone. Every The pastor was gone. Steve Hill's now in heaven. He died of cancer. I mean, he started his own church. and I mean, just all, the, the, everybody went, Michael Brown went somewhere else. Everybody went different directions. It blew apart. Now, there were hundreds of thousands of people saved through that, and that's, praise the Lord for that. But people get involved. People's wills get involved. Mankind will always be the greatest adversary to the move of the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you a couple of examples and then I'm going to stop. See, let's say that today 15 people give their lives to Christ in this service. And right here today, 30 people get baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, I know we're, we're, you know, we're a media-driven people, so we're going to put that on Facebook. And, you know, it's on the Internet. Man, glory to God. We had a girl the other night watching, just watching on Thursday night, got baptized in the Holy Ghost right on our online service. Man, see, uh, some, some folks started sharing. Sharon was talking to her. Kathy was talking to her and said, you know, this is what you need to do. And she said, well, I prayed. And all of a sudden, I felt something on the inside of me happen. Glory. See, when you pray and you're sincere, things are going to start happening, man. She said, I prayed. And she says, and now I'm speaking all these funny words. And then we said, well, that, that's it. You got it right there. That's it. Hallelujah. So all these folks get saved at church. And then we start praying for the sick. And I mean, people are getting out of wheelchairs. People are getting out of deathbeds. People are, miracles are happening. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And, and we're telling the testimony. We start putting it on Facebook. We're putting, oh, glory to God, look. Look at John. He was, he was brought in dead on a gurney and, and, and he was raised from the dead. Isn't this awesome? Hallelujah. And the morning sun sees it. And the morning sun puts on the Monday morning paper. Local cult in Wheeler, Michigan. Oh, don't tell me they won't do that. They will do that. See, if you if you don't if you think the world is ever going to appreciate what God's doing, you're you're crazy. The devil and the world will work overtime to scandalize everything that's happening in the church. Anything that's trying to move forward for the kingdom will always the the, the so more, front page. You're taking your Amazing Grace pen off on Monday morning. Oh, boy, I don't want everybody at work to know about that, man, because that people, and you know how people will ask you where you, you don't go to that church, do you? Huh? You don't go to, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go, you, you don't believe all that stuff, do you? You don't believe that, do you? Come on, you believe, you know, everybody's going to heaven. God loves everybody. You don't believe that people got to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Don't you know you're offending all of the the Buddhists and the, the Islamics and come on man you're hurting people's feelings because of what what your church is doing your church is the problem in this world front page of the morning sun it's a big old picture of Pastor Jolliffe right there on the front and there's Mark and Jeannie standing there and Joe's there and we're all just laying hands on people and they said look at these weirdos strange Joes perverts look at them they're nobodies they're what are they they're just a bunch of ignorant people that don't understand and then they'll have some religious leader 
who will write a little blurb in there. Yes, well, historically, fanaticism has always been a part of the church, and this is just another one of those fanatic wings of the church where people have gotten a little too excited and experienced glossolalia and, you know, and just weird things that begin to happen. And we definitely, in First Church, would never have anything like that happen, and we would not promote nor endorse what Brother Jolliffe is doing down there in Wheeler, Michigan. Don't tell me it won't happen. It'll happen. I, you just got to know how scandal works. And today in our world, the way the media operates, it doesn't have to be the truth. It just has to be what they say is true. Oh, you know, Pastor Jolliffe, you got to watch this guy. I mean, you know, he's got. And they let the mayor be a part of the worship team. Huh? Oh, you know, at one point, this is a true story. At one point, when Chuck was the mayor and I was the head of the Chamber of Commerce, people in town threw a fit because they said the Amazing Grace is taking over the town. Oh, so here it comes, man. See, Nehemiah, you know, see, we all think, well, if it's God, it'll be powerful and it'll last and it'll be wonderful and it'll be glorious. No, because we're going to get involved and because there's going to be all this pressure against us to say, you don't want to do that. And all your friends are going to be saying, you don't go to that church. And then there'll be some friends that will say, do you go to that church? I was thinking about coming over there. It sounds like something's going on. You say, well, pastor, why aren't 10 people getting saved here today? Because you didn't bring 10 sinners with you today. I mean, who's supposed to bring people to church? I, I mean, I know people, but I, I invite them to come, but I can't bring everybody. Heck, most people are doing good just to get here themselves. Wow, man, I'm feeling punchy today. You know, I'm your pastor. I love you. I love you no matter what. But, you know, the, there's not going to be 18 people baptized in the Holy Ghost because you didn't bring them. So, well, yeah, well, where's the miraculous healing of getting out of a wheelchair or getting off a gurney? We, did you bring anybody here like that? I don't see anybody here today. Anybody here in a wheelchair today? I don't see anybody. I don't see, I took my glasses off, but I, still, I don't see a gurney up here anywhere. See, because for that to happen, you know, what do we think? That the Holy Spirit's going to go out in the community and start dragging people to church? No, we're going to have to go out and say to folks in the highways and byways and compel them to come in. What if, what, I mean, just throwing this out, what if God is bringing us to a threshold where by this time, June 1st, there's a 1,000 people going to church here? I don't care about the number, that, please. Because if that means something to us, then that's part of the problem why we'll never have that. Okay? We'll never have that. Do you know for us to take care of a thousand people in here, we have to have at least three or four weekend services. We're going to need about a hundred people in children's ministry. We're going to need multiple worship teams. We're going to need a lot of ushers. Huh? We're going to need a lot of folks to be involved to make that all happen. We're going to need a lot of people ready to make coffee out in the lobby. You can't just have one or two people doing that. Well, Pastor, I don't I just don't feel much like volunteering. Let me let me let me. Let me just clear this up for you this morning. 
volunteering it was never a part of the church. You get saved, you get filled, and then you start serving. God doesn't go, do we have any volunteers? You know, he didn't call his guys, he didn't call his disciples by going, uh, are there any tax collectors who would like to volunteer for the team? Uh, is anybody down there fishing like to be a part of the team? Uh, we need help. Uh, anybody want to volunteer? We're looking for good volunteers. Anybody want to volunteer? Volunteer is what the Red Cross does. The church enlists. No, it does. I, oh, man, I'm telling you, if I haven't offended you yet, I'm working hard at it. No, man, it's not about you getting to, you, you don't get to decide. This isn't like you get to decide. You got saved. That was your decision. When you got saved, now you get filled. Once you get filled, now you get serving, putting your attributes to work in the house of the Lord. We got, look, here we got a lot of people that serve, but we still only got about 33% of our church that's involved in serving. Imagine if it was 100%. Well, that will never happen. Yeah, with that attitude, it won't. So don't tell me you're not the problem. Huh? We got to go get them. We got to go. We got to be willing to take me out of the way and say, Lord, what is it? See, I know, you know, for folks, I said, well, what if by June? Well, you know, Pastor, uh, that's when vacations start. And, uh, you know, now, Pastor, it would be awesome. But could we reschedule that revival for October next this year? That would be better because, you know, I've got vacation and I've got, you know, I've got my planned misses from service and, you know, I've got all this going on in my life and I might have to mow my yard and I don't know and blah, blah, blah. Well, what if God's just going to do it in spite of the attitude of his people and say, you know what, I'm going to do this and I don't, you know, you want to go on vacation, vacate. But here's the thing. That's awesome. I believe in vacation and rest. But, He confounds the wise. He confounds wisdom with foolishness. He confounds it. And he's intentional about it. He's like, oh, you don't think that? Oh, you don't think kids should be a part of serving and prophesying? Well, here, then, let me just have some kids prophesy and serve. Right? And so some little kid comes up to you and says, the Lord just spoke to me about this financial situation you're dealing with in your life at work and just wanted me to tell you that there's three people that are going to come this week that are going to share, that are going to write out checks to help you break through that financial barrier. Now you can stand there and go, well, you know, that's just a, that's just a seven-year-old. God can't use a seven-year-old. Huh? Look, he used the jackass in the Bible. He can use a seven-year-old. Not that, not that I'm equating the two, right? But come on. What are we thinking? The revival. Now, I'm going to stop this morning, but I just want you to realize that what God has called you to isn't something that you're going to know how to do. You're going to have to trust him. He wants you to stay in prayer, stay in faith. It's so easy for us to just stay in the comfortable thing that we're used to, right? Right? We're all used to that. I know, I know. you know, in my, in my working out, if I stayed in what's comfortable, I would walk at a slow pace, 
no pain, right? Have me a bottle of Gatorade with me. But see, I know that just by doing that, that I'm not going to change. That if I'm really going to change, I'm going to have to drop the bottle of Gatorade. I'm going to have to go at a speed that I don't like. Snot's going to be running out of my nose. I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to stink. It's going to be bad. I'm going to go through some tough stuff here. I'm not going to look pretty. My hair's going to be messed up. And that's just the way that it is. But I do know this, that if I go through that, I'll change. sure how you were going to end this this morning, but, you know, I'm oh, an I'm applicable. Done. Okay, good. Um, then I can, I can finish it. Um, I'm an applicable person. In other words, I mean, what he's saying here, I mean, if I weren't involved, I'd be, I'm sitting in my seat going right now. Where? How do I get involved? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? And so 30% of this church is, the, is, you know, and then we wonder why people burn out. Yeah. And we're only doing two services a week. Right, right. And you're wanting, we're wanting revival. Let's say that not even a thousand people show up on June the 1st. Let's say another hundred people yeah. show up on, that's going to affect what's going on in here. Yeah. Okay. That means more children's workers. But let me tell you this. If a hundred percent of our people were, vo- were serving in the ministry, that, that doesn't mean that you're going to be serving every service. Right. You see, we get in our head, we, get, we think, okay, that means that I'm going to have to serve every service. It means I'm going to have to do this. It means I'm going to have to do that. It means I'm going to have to come and help Sonia clean every week. No, it doesn't. It means that, it means that you're going to have to do it maybe once in a while. But the thing is that you want to. Yes. Do you realize that when you do ministry together, you begin to, you begin to know one another? You begin to find out who the other people are that's around you, that's serving together with you? You begin to build community. You begin to get to know one another. So this is the thing this morning that I feel like that we should do. If you're here this morning and you're not involved in any area of ministry, and again, we're not condemning you. We are urging you to do what the gospel says. Yes. To come along the side of and serve in the ministry. And that could be anywhere from scrubbing toilets right. to serving coffee to handing a handshake. I mean, we had three greeter, three sets of, I don't know if you know this, but we had three sets of greeters awesome. out here. Awesome. They, because they were so excited about serving, somebody just realized that, oh, I'm, I'm on dirt, duty this morning. Really, they weren't, but that's okay. Yeah. Because you know what? We, and it was so awesome to see somebody at the front door, in the middle, and then right here. Greeting. And, I mean, do and you, the statistics say within the first five minutes, people have decided whether this is a good, they're going to come to this church. They're gonna it's stay. from the greeters. From the greeters. So they got to be the best. It's not the coffee. they got to be good with folks. No. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dave. It's not the coffee. So this is the thing. If you're sitting here and you've been coming to church here now for (laughs) so long, it doesn't matter. If you've only been coming here for a month, you need to get involved. Yeah. Because you will will not stick around if you do not get involved. Yeah, the two things, that's, and I'll just tie in with that. Not or feeling God is impressing you to step to a new level. You're at a threshold. Yes. God's moving, saying, look, it's time for you to step it up. We're getting ready to go over. Yeah. You've been here even for 20 years, yep. and you're not involved. Yep. You need to step it up. Yeah. So, you say, okay, so what do I need to do? What needs to happen? We've got, Pastor and I are here. Yep. You all know who Chuck and Carrie are. Right. You all know who Kathy Thigpen is. Yep. You all know who, uh, is Mark and Jeannie here? Mark's here. Yep. 
Yep. You, and Jeannie's probably serving in, Jeannie's, in the, Jeannie's an elder in this church, yes. and she's serving in children's yes. ministry. Yes. I mean, nothing wrong with that. She wants to do that. Yes. One, because she sees the need, and two, because she loves children. So, I mean, you know who people are in this church. So if you're here today and you say, I want to get involved, you come see us. Yeah. I don't care if we have to make up something for you to do. We'll find it. Seriously. Nina. Nina. Nina's here. Yes. yes. Nina's back here. She's in charge of the greeters. Yep. We need Chuck's counters. Chuck's back here and with the ushers. Uh, Chuck's back here with the ushers. Uh, Tim, Tim, I don't know if Greg's still back there, but Tim's back there. Yeah. In the, Greg's in there. Greg's in there. Uh, in the uh, media room, that's how that's how we're getting this across. That's how a thousand people saw this, saw services last week. Was because there were people involved. Sound, you know, we need people in the sound. We need we need people from the beginning to the end of this building. Come on. And if we're going to be doing another service on a Sunday morning, I'm not saying we are, but if we are, we're going to need people to help clean. You say, well, how much does that pay? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the benefit that you're coming along the side of somebody else and you're getting to know them and you're beginning and you're building community. Yes. That's what's that's that's your payment. Yep. So you wanna you wanna get involved? Come see us. Yep, we'll connect. Come you. see us. We will connect you with somebody. Yep. Amen. I just close with this thought. Stand up with me if you would. True story, a church had a service just like this one. And they said, Well, we're gonna get ready. So they prepared. God told them that there was going to be people that were going to come by the thousands to get born again in this move of the Spirit. True story. So they prepared for 3,500 people. That's how they got themselves ready. They started thinking, okay, what do we need to do, you know, service-wise, everything for 3,500 people. When it broke, 35,000 people. Okay. 35,000. Thousand, not 3,500, 35,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Now, that is totally cool, but guess what? A lot of them got lost out there because the church that was told to get ready refused, didn't get ready at the level they needed to. See, just because God tells you something doesn't mean you stop praying. Probably I'd pray more. Lord, tell me how to get ready. What do we need to do? What do I got to do? What's the next thing? So even if you're feeling I'm going to get involved in something, I'm going to do more, look, you still got to pray. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father God. Hallelujah. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, though none go with me, yet I will follow, though none go with me, Yet I will follow, though none go with me, yet I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. 
you have a great day. Don't forget about 3 o'clock. We've got that event up there.